0: morning, brothers and sisters. Well, we're continuing in our study of John's Gospel, and this morning we find ourselves in a familiar passage, perhaps one that some of us even memorized in Sunday school. And as great as that is, one of the problems with familiar passages is, is that we know the words so well that they have a way of going in one ear and out the other. And my prayer this morning is that the Lord will really open our eyes to see the riches that are hidden for us in this passage that we're about to read. So our scripture reading then is in John's Gospel, chapter 14, and we're going to read together the first 14 verses. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word? John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Let's hear these words as though it was the first time we were ever hearing them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage, let's just ask for the Lord's help. God our Father, we've been singing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. And we've heard these words of Philip show us the Father. And that's our desire this morning that you would show us the Father, Lord Jesus, that you would show us his love and our acceptance before him in you, Lord Jesus. And his power, the power that is available to us, for you are at his right hand, interceding for us. Show us these things, open our hearts to receive, let our eyes see, let our ears hear, for we ask it, our Father, in the powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, before we dig into this passage, it's important for us to get our bearings At the conclusion of chapter 12, which we had a couple of Sundays ago, Jesus ends his public ministry to the Jews. And now in the 13th to the 17th chapter, he's no longer performing signs and wonders and debating with the Pharisees, but rather is focused on his disciples, preparing them for what lies ahead. And in these five chapters, chapter 13 to 17... He prepares his disciples by telling them three things. There's probably more, but three main things. I'm returning to the Father. Why that should make you rejoice and what you must do while I'm gone. Now, it's important that we see these things in these five chapters. And so what I want to do so that you recognize these themes as they come up again and again over the coming weeks, I want to just throw at you really quickly a bunch of snippets from these verses or from these chapters that demonstrate that. So first, I am returning to the Father. Yet a little while, I am with you, 13.31. I go to prepare a place for you, 14.3. I am going away, 14.28. But now I am going to him who sent me, 16.5. A little while and you will see me no longer, 1616. But now I am coming to you, 1713. Now he told them this in advance so that when it did take place, they would believe. And to assure them that though they would be sorrowful at his departure, your sorrow would turn into joy, 1620. So the first thing was, I am returning to the Father. The second is, why his return to the Father should make them rejoice. So again, you won't be able to keep up with this, but just hear these snippets. I will come again and take you to myself. 14.3. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, 14.13. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, 14.16. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, 14.18. We will come to him and make our home with him. 14.23, but if I go, I will send him to you, 16.7, and his purpose for telling him these things, that your joy may be full, 16.24, and finally he tells them what they were to do while he was gone, wash one another's feet, 13.12, love one another, 13.34, Keep my commandments, 14.15. Abide in me, 15.4. Ask and you will receive, 16.24. And he tells them all that so that, 15.11, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So in summary, he told them he was going away to assure them that their sorrow would be turned into joy. He told them that he, what he would be doing for them when, when he was gone so that their joy would be full. And he showed them what they were to do in his absence so that they would be blessed in doing it and so that their joy would be full. Now why do I go through all of that? So that we can see that all that the Lord is sharing and all that the Lord is demonstrating to his disciples in these Five chapters is to set their hearts on the joy that lies ahead in spite of all that is about to happen. And it strikes me as so beautiful that the Lord, with his own heart so troubled at the prospect of the cross that looms before him, and all its sorrow and all its agony, focuses in on his own. Strengthening them and preparing them and focusing on them on the glory that lies ahead. And I believe that in a very direct way, this encouragement is meant very much for you and me. And I say that because as Jesus concludes these five chapters, he prays in 1720, I do not ask for these only but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. In these, in these chapters, the Lord wants to give us an object that lies beyond our present distress so as to turn our sorrow into joy. So as we go through these chapters together over the next few weeks, remember that they are directed at you, brothers and sisters, with the goal Of filling your heart with joy, even in the midst of sorrow and distress. So that's the context for our chapter. And with that, let's dig into this passage. Jesus is with his eleven, Judas having gone out. They're in the upper room, and there's tension in the air. There's tension in the air because Jesus has just told them three very painful things that one of them will betray him, that Peter will deny him, and most devastatingly of all, that he is going away. So there's tension, there's anxiety, and that's why the passage starts out, let not your hearts be troubled. They were grieved because they wanted to have him as their Messiah on the earth. But he wants them to understand the much greater blessing of knowing him as the Son of God at the right hand of the Father and their relationship with the Father through him. And so to do that, he focuses on three things. And it's these three things that we'll use as the headings under which we'll examine this passage. Their place with the Father their access to the Father, and their relationship with the Father. Their place with the Father, their access to the Father, and their relationship with the Father. We're going to consider this passage under those three headings. Let's, headings. Let's start with their place with the Father. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. They had believed in God the Father without seeing him, and now they must believe on him without seeing him. His returning to the Father was not forsaking them, for there was a place for all of them there, which he would prepare for them through his death and through his resurrection. In my Father's house are many rooms. In other words... Where I am with the Father is a place for all of you as well. I'm going to prepare that place for you and then personally come and take you to it. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I want to read that to you, if I could, in the ASV. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. I remember as a kid in Sunday school memorizing this verse and thinking... Why would he have told them if it were not so? Why would he have told them if it were not so? It didn't make any sense to me. And I want to try to explain it this way for the children. If you were to say to your mom and dad, are we doing anything this summer? And they were to say to you, why, yes, we're going to Europe for two months. If it weren't so, we would have told you. You say, well, that's a very strange thing to say. Unless you go to Europe all summer. But if this morning you were to say to your mom and dad, hey, are we going to church this morning? And they said, of course we're going to church this morning. If, it, if we weren't, we'd have told you. That's what we do on Sunday morning. At least I hope you do. You should assume that we're going to church on Sunday morning unless you are told Otherwise. So Jesus is saying to them that after everything that I have revealed to you about the Father and his love for you, you should have assumed that there was a place for you there. They should have known. He would have told them if it wasn't so. That's what this means. And if we had time, we could turn to so many things that Jesus had said to them that should have assured them that this was true. Like John 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So as they anticipate Jesus' departure, he wants them to know that he is not forsaking them, but going ahead of them, that there is a place reserved for them, and that he is going to prepare it for them. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's not going to send someone else to get them. But he will personally come to them and take them to be with him there. And of course, that's what we have in 2 Thessalonians 4. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel... And with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you, do you think about the Lord's return very often? Does the prospect of being with him fill your heart with joy? If it doesn't, there's something wrong. Because in 1 John 3, we read, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, this hope has a purifying and a renewing effect on us. Now, how could it be that the Lord would want to focus his disciples on this home, this place this prospect, and not want you to focus on it and me to focus on it as well? Why would the Lord use the prospect of the Father's house to inspire and fill the hearts of the disciples with joy if he didn't want the same for you and me? Is your heart filled with anxiety and sorrow this morning? Then focus on your place in the Father's house. The Lord Jesus has secured for you with his own blood. What is that place like? You say, I don't know. But I do know it's the Father's home. And I do know that the Lord Jesus Christ will be there. And I know that their God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I know that the Apostle Paul was caught up into it, and all he could say is that he heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. In another place after he said, my desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. And I know that the Scriptures say, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So in their anxiety, the Lord Jesus focused them and focuses us on our place with the Father. So we've talked about their place with the Father. Now let's look at our second point, their access to the Father. Verse 4, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is saying that If you could just tell us where, then we could figure out how to get there. Maybe he's thinking, if you're going to Capernaum, or if you're going to Bethany, just tell us where, and then we'll figure out the best way to get there. And we do this all the time on our devices, don't we? Just tell me where I'm going, I'll type it into my device, and then I'll know the way. Some ways will be more scenic, some ways will be faster, some ways will be cheaper, but eventually you'll get there. And in our pluralistic society, many think it's the same when it comes to getting to God. Many paths. You take yours, I'll take mine. In the end, we'll all get there. Or so the idea goes with so many. But I want you to hear me very carefully on this. When it comes to where Jesus was going, there is only one way. For he is going to the Father, and the way to the Father is very exclusive. It is only through the Son. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Simpler words have never been spoken. It's impossible to mistake their meaning. That the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ, the Son. I want us to consider these three things. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What is a way? Well, it's something that connects two places. You could consider a ladder a way. A ladder in one sense is a way because it connects two points. A point on the ground to the point on the top of a building. And each one of us is speeding through life and we are all following a way that will end up somewhere. How sad to spend your life climbing a proverbial ladder only to find that it's leaning against the wrong building. How sad to spend your life on the road that leads to destruction. But Jesus does not stand at the crossroads of life and say, I will show you the way. He says, I am The way. Think of it this way: if you are in an airport and you're going overseas and you have a ticket, and on that ticket is a gate number, and you come to that gate, they don't say to you, Now, listen, if you just head 157.5 degrees south-southwest, you'll get to your destination. That's not helpful. You need to to get to your destination, you need to go through the right gate, you need to get into that right plane, you need to sit on your seat, and it will Take you there. And those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith belong to him, and he takes them to the Father. And those he takes to the Father are always accepted. But all who seek to come in any other way are forever cast out. So Jesus is the way, but he's also the truth. What is truth? This was the question that Pilate asked at the trial of Jesus. What is truth? It's a question that every seeking person asks. What is true? What is real? What's reality? What can be relied upon? This is the pursuit of man to uncover the truth. But some have exchanged the truth for a lie. Some have grown disillusioned in their pursuit and chosen to exchange reality for a virtual world that is much less painful than the real one. But you can only escape reality for so long. Sooner or later, you'll have to face it. And Jesus does not stand there in the midst of life's perplexing questions and say that I'll tell you the truth. He does tell us the truth, but he declares, I am the truth. Without him, there is no truth. Reject him, and you can't see anything clearly. Embrace him, and you embrace reality. It doesn't mean that all of your questions are answered immediately, but it does mean that you will receive the light that is necessary to see all things as they truly are. And he is the life. He's the life. You know, there's a difference between life and existence, isn't there? Some have lost sight of that in the last couple of years and have reduced life to merely existence and avoiding getting sick. And there are many more that think that life is nothing more than the pursuit of fulfilling their glandular impulses. But health and wealth and pleasure and fame and all other material things we spend our lives pursuing never seem to satisfy, do they? That's why, or the reason why, is because at creation, God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul. And nothing physical can satisfy him. That's why people who seem to have absolutely everything going for them sometimes take their lives because they have tasted every success that life can offer and discovered that it's not enough. It just doesn't satisfy. Nothing satisfies. That's because we've been made in such a way that the only thing that can yield true and lasting satisfaction is living in relationship with our Creator. That's why Jesus said, I have come... That they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want you and I, brothers and sisters, to think about what you have, what we have in Jesus. You have the way, access to the Father, and a path that ends at the Father's home. You have the truth, you have reality the light to see things as they really are, and the ability to live in that reality because you have, the third thing, the life, abundant life, life that is rich, meaningful, and satisfying because it thrives in relationship with God. Jesus says this to his disciples to assure them and to comfort them in their anxiety, all of this was theirs because they had him. And his return to the Father would not change that. In fact, as we'll see later, it would would result in far greater blessing than if he remained. Well, we've talked about their place with the Father and their access to the Father. Let's talk about our third and last point, their relationship with the Father. Verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Here the Lord wants to take his disciples to another level of understanding of their relationship to the father. Nathaniel had said much earlier on, you are the son of God. Peter had confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, whatever they meant by that, it seems clear from this passage that they didn't really understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. And we see this in Philip's response. Philip, like the others, is anxious at the prospect of the Lord leaving them. Perhaps he just couldn't get it into his mind how he could go on through life, without the physical presence of Jesus. Those of us that have lost a loved one, we understand that. And Philip couldn't get his mind on how he could go on without the Lord's physical presence among them. And perhaps Philip's mind went back to Moses when he was faced with the threat of of God's removal of his presence from them in the wilderness after the incident with the golden calf. And Moses had looked for assurances from God by requesting that God should show him his glory. And God had partially granted that request. you remember? God had placed Moses in the cleft of a rock. He'd covered, it with his, covered him with his hand, and then he'd walk past, and he'd let Moses see his glory from the back. But he would not allow Moses to see his face because he said, no one can see my face and live. And maybe Philip made that connection here and thought, perhaps that was what gave Moses the strength to go through those 40 years in the wilderness. And maybe Philip thought, if you have to leave us, then at least let us see the Father. But without realizing it, Philip had seen much more than Moses ever did. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long, been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Moses had seen the glory of God from a distance, the back of God. But for three years, they had heard him with their ears. They had seen him face to face with their eyes. They had touched him with their hands. Not just an uh, an earthly Messiah, but God manifest in the flesh. And years later, the Apostle John, reflecting on these precious years, now with the Spirit's illumination, writes in awe and wonder and says, "That that, "...that which was from the beginning." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, And was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. For three years they had looked into the face of God manifest in the flesh. They had known him as Messiah, even Son of God. But they had not to this point grasped his union with the Father. That every word he spoke, the Father was speaking. Every work he did, the Father was doing. That even when he walked among him, he lived in the immediate presence of the Father himself. That he was going to the right hand of the Father to daily intercede for them with his own blood. That when he did, they would be as as accepted before the Father as Christ himself. That while the Father and the Son are two persons, they are one in essence and will such as the relationship between the Father and the Son. And of course, the Holy Spirit as well, but that's the subject of next week. The hymn writer put it far better than I could. Thou art the everlasting Word, the Father's only Son. God manifest, God seen and heard, the Heaven's Beloved One. The higher mysteries Of thy fame, the creature's grasp transcends. The Father only, thy blessed name of Son, can comprehend. Here is an ocean to swim in. A glory that goes beyond our power to comprehend. And the Lord recognized that the disciples, who as yet had not received the Helper, were unable to grasp the relationship to the Father, his relationship to the Father. And so he says to them in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The works that they had seen were not just proof of his messiahship, but they were proof of his sonship. So he says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The disciples would go on to do works of healing in his name, but not not greater works of healing that I can see. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus had said, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And having died and been raised and ascended to the Father, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And to indwell his own, filling them with courage and boldness. With this result that on one occasion, 3,000 people are saved at one time. And if there's a greater work than healing, it's the work of salvation, the salvation of Of a lost soul. And the ascended Christ put them in direct connection with the Father so that whatever they asked the Father in Jesus' name, He would do it for them. So, to this anxious little company gathered around the Lord in that upper room on that dark and foreboding night, Jesus comforts them and seeks to fill their hearts with joy in anticipation as he reveals to them their place with the Father, their access to the Father, and their relationship with the Father. Let me close with this, and I am addressing this exclusively to my brothers and sisters in Christ, those that know and love the Lord Jesus. This morning you may have come here with anxiety in your hearts, just like those disciples so many years ago. And this morning, the Lord Jesus is here, and he reminds us, he reminds you of your place in the Father's house that he has prepared for you, and to which he is coming back to take you to. In your confusion and disorientation, he wants to remind you that you have the way, you have the truth, And you have the life because you have him. And he has you. And in your weakness and despair, he wants to remind you that his position at the right hand of God puts you in direct connection with the Father. And that the power that is available to you as you ask and as you act in his name is frankly infinite. And this morning to remind you of that, he invites you to come to his table and to partake of the symbols of his body and of his blood and so remind you that you are his, that he is yours, and to receive strength from the throne of grace to face another week. So let's come as brothers and sisters to the Lord's table.